This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation, like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Welcome into the Ben Burnett Show. My guest today is Georgia State Senator Josh McLaurin. Josh, welcome in. Thanks, Ben. How are uh, how are things, man? Did you enjoy the long drive up to North Fulton? Am I actually sitting in your district right now? You know, I love pop quizzes about exactly what's in or not in my district. Um, oh, I, you're going to give me the I don't know. I think that it's, I think we're just outside because Old Milton Parkway is sort of the northern end and and it's not even consistently the northern end, so I think anything that's north of Old Milton Parkway is um, very likely to be out. So you sit in a newly drawn Senate district as of twenty twenty one, the last census, right? You are a resident of Buckhead. Well, the community of Buckhead in the city of Atlanta. That's you, right. yeah. <laughs> you're a Buckhead guy. There you go. Where did you grow up? I grew up in East Cobb County. You know, I claim Atlanta native because I was born at Northside. Uh, in at that time was unincorporated Atlanta, now Sandy Springs. And uh, I commuted from East Cobb to Westminster for school, private school. You know, I've gotten some uh, some flack for that since I opposed like the, you like you had a choice the voucher bill. <laughs> you know, it's funny though. I mean, I, I have a recollection of my parents uh, discussing that with me uh, when I was pretty young. I mean, I, I started private school from the very beginning. I actually never went to public school K through twelve. But my mom was from Kentucky, a pretty rural part of Kentucky. Dad was from East Texas, and they they weren't super familiar with you know private school options. I'll put it that way. So when we applied to the, the schools in Atlanta, I mean, I think they were a little bit overwhelmed in terms of knowing what to do. It, it's a it's a choice. It's a choice that, to your point, I mean, I didn't really have a whole lot of say in. No, not not many ten year olds do, or younger, right? <laughs> five, four, five year old. Yeah, right. You went to the University of Georgia. Go dogs. That seems to be the bipartisan thing that everyone seems relatively okay with down there. It's like you're not going to catch a lot of flack for being a Georgia guy. I mean, under uh, Speaker Ralston's administration, that was never a, an unsafe talking point when I was in the House. And, and yeah, there's my hedge against the, the private school upbringing, right, is the first time I really had a choice, I went to a, a public school. So how about that? How, uh, what did you study at Georgia? You know, I studied international affairs and religion as bachelor's degrees, uh, and then I got a master's in public administration at the, sh- at the same time. I have sort of a stock joke about that, that it's uh, every component you need to set up your own theocracy. <laughs> You've got the religious background. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a that's a funnier joke when you're not holding public office and speaking on the radio to people who are right, right-leaning. So, But yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it, I actually picked, I had my mom pick a hand because at orientation for, for a school for public international affairs, they say, poli-sci majors this way, international affairs majors this way. I hadn't thought that far ahead, so I held out two hands in my mom, and she picked my international affairs degrees. What was your favorite part about studying, man? That's a great question. I, I think I'm just mostly interested in people, how people think, what motivates people. I guess in some other universe, I might have tried to get a psychology degree or something like that. You still can. I guess, yeah, there's still time. What I love about politics, one of the reasons why as much as I, you know, curse the sky every day walking around the Capitol building in the minority party, I really genuinely love being there. And the reason is because it's fascinating to think, why do people make decisions that in some cases seem super rational and then in other cases, you know, maybe less so. And maybe sometimes when people make what look like irrational decisions, there's actually some sort of logic to it. You and I have spoken a little bit before this uh, interview about you know, just in general, what people are like and and how you can ascribe certain reasons to people's decision making. There are plenty of people that I wholeheartedly agree with that I think are terrible people. And there's plenty of people that I disagree with nearly on every issue that I would do anything for. They're not mutually exclusive. Well, and that and so it's interesting because even that is a choice, right? I mean, I think it's not axiomatic that political alliances should be made with people who you don't like personally but agree with on policy. I mean, some people have a, a different worldview, and I think I'm closer to this worldview, that trust in politics is really more about kindness and, and where a person's coming from personally than it even is sometimes about the policy positions that they hold. Because I think 
it's sort of a, it's an arrogance thing that human beings have. We think we can separate our personal flaws, like sort of keep them cordoned off, but advocate for the true and pure policy over here in a different area. And I don't know that we're capable of stopping the leakage. If we've got problems in our personal lives that we're not resolving, I think oftentimes those problems end up manifesting as bad policy. And I think we deceive ourselves to think that, that it works any other way. So you went to law school as well, correct? I did. Where did you go to law school? I went to Yale. Different kind of bulldog? Yeah, they spell it wrong uh, with an O. <laughs> yeah, you like that? Yeah, that's another stock joke. You know, so went back to private school, right? You know, I made, I guess a couple people noticed that I was uh, J.D. Vance's roommate one all year of law school. I don't know if you knew that. No. Yeah. I bet you guys agreed on everything. Absolutely everything. He was actually a really thoughtful person one all year and had a lot of open conversations about the difficulties in his worldview. I mean, he could acknowledge vulnerability in his worldview. He once told me um, that he was conflicted about the Second Amendment because, on the one hand, he understood it to mean, well, it was a, it's, it's a legal right, right? It's part of a, a constellation of legal rules and a constitutional order. Uh, that has to be upheld by courts and power and whatever. And is consistently. And is consistently, it turns out. But on the other hand, in his view, was meant to enshrine the right to essentially violent rebellion against your own government. Because if the private citizenry is sufficiently armed, they can oppose tyranny. And so he found there to be a conflict between that sense that, yes, this is part of law and order, but it's also enshrining a principle that's meant to be this sort of subversive element to too much law and order. And he thought that was interesting tension. I mean, that's a really good point. And he had a lot of thoughts like that. And I, get, I think that's why I, you know, publicly in 2022, when he was seeking Trump's endorsement, you know, made a comment about how, you know, adding to the pile of comments about how he had changed from being a never Trumper to, to being somebody who's fully on board. Do you have a relationship with him today? Absolutely not. No, I mean, the last time we spoke was 2016. And <laughs> it was, well, leading up to Trump's election, and this is where I got the you know private DMs from him where he was very open about why he opposed Trump and thought he was so dangerous. But later that year, after Trump was elected, I tried to reconnect to say, hey, you know, going forward, what do you think we all do to try to respond to this moment? Now, of course, I ended up choosing a path in democratic politics, and I think to the extent that he was aware of that or maybe he was just busy with other stuff, that gave him less of a reason to engage because that just wasn't going to be the way that he, you know, responded to the moment. And obviously now, six years plus later, he's <laughs> taken a much different angle. But but yeah, no, I mean, this is really just all to say that going to a place like Yale is really fascinating because, yeah, it's stuffy. It represents a lot of, uh, you know, what you might assume about the left or the liberal elite, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and they're all true? Uh, there's some of those things that are probably pretty true. But the um, the point I wanted to make is that it is an interesting place to be just because of who comes out of there. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. When you look, you look at people like Dan Crenshaw, who went to Tufts, which is not a bastion of conservatism, and then went to Harvard and got an MPA or an MPP. And you look at people like, like he's clearly thoughtful. And he clearly went to, they don't let people like me into a place like that. They might now on the other side of elected life in a city they may have heard of, but not necessarily. That's more of like the resume builder path into an education like that. As you start evaluating, what kind of law do you like to practice? Well, like to or, or make money doing? Because, you know, those are, I ask a lawyer, they're typically not the mutually <laughs> making, making money doing what they like. So clearly also a capitalist. Oh, you mean I, I think private property rights should be fairly well defined so that Coase theorem kicks in and all the right outcomes happen? Yeah, I, th I think if there aren't market failures, that works pretty well, you know, so. What do you do by day? Because I always tell people, yeah. if you if you sit in the General Assembly, and I've had a bunch of people on over time, it is not a full-time job. I mean, it may be a full-time job, but it is not full-time pay. Correct. That's that's the right way to say it. I, I've I tried to pitch this to a handful of libertarians before, that you think you're getting less government when you pay legislators less, but what you're actually getting is the same amount or more government that is outsourced to lobbyists. Because instead of paying the public official to exercise public values and have a a staff, you know, we only get $7,000 in budget per year. Per individual. For the whole office. Yeah. yeah. Now, you know, that's if you're not like a chairman or, you know, whatever else, a speaker of the house, all that. And we do have wonderful assistants who do their best to juggle multiple members, that two senators per assistant, eight representatives per assistant. But, we, but we're not funding government at a basic level. And what happens is then you have a core of full-time, year-long corporate lobbyists 
who run the Capitol. And a lot of them are very good people, but they get their way and they know what they're talking about because they're the ones who have the time, energy, resources to money. focus on it. Money to focus on it. Rant over, soapbox over. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to say the least to juggle uh, legislative service in this state with any other sort of gainful employment full time. I'm a civil litigator, so I've spent most of my time since 2018 when, when I was elected to the House uh, working for a law firm or in-house at an airline. Uh, that, briefly at that airline, it uh, unfortunately went bankrupt. Um, I'd like to think that I had nothing to do with that, but... Uh, you hope not. You know. Let's talk about the pay thing for a minute. Yeah. Uh, under Because I, I know that we part ways on lots of political philosophy. Sure. But I also, I sit on the radio all the time and they're like, we should pay these people in elected office less. And after sitting in a well-oiled machine of a municipality knowing that the pay is $1,250 a month, it's not a lot to get by on. And I think sometimes the best ideas and the people that you would want it, that, that would want to do that, can't make the sacrifice. It doesn't allow politics to get younger, and I think that is inherently unhealthy. Right. Not because I'm opposed to old people in office. I am when it gets to a certain level. But I also think that you deserve someone's best days. And I think that so often your best days are prior to 60 and your most thoughtful time that if you would take a different attitude towards that, and I've seen people like Wes Cantrell look at wanting to raise the salary to a certain level so that it can be more of a middle class, almost middle class right. way to get by. Right. Middle class means a lot of different things to people in certain parts of the state versus sure. others. And I totally agree. And I would have no problem explaining why I felt that way to an individual who was the burn it all down, they don't need anything. It's like, man, you, how many hours a week during the session you are putting in at least 40, at least? I, I'll say this. You can make all those arguments for why it's merited or why you know more people need opportunity. I'll go straight to what I think is the, at least on the right, the conservative side of the political aisle, the, the real concern, which is big government. People don't want to fund politicians, the scope of government, and in general want to spend less on it, right? Drown in a bathtub or whatever the talking point is, right, from, from Grover. But I think, you know, going back to my pitch about the concentration of power, I don't know, I mean, I know that a lot of people say government power is the type of power they're most, you know, worried about or concerned about because of tyranny. I think that just concentration of power, whether it's, you know, private or public, you know, if, if a handful of companies, what, seven companies in the S&P are driving however much percent of the growth. 40. <clears throat> right, exactly. I mean, I think concentration of power in general is bad, uh, regardless of whether those people are elected or unelected. I think most of us would prefer that the people who have, you know, relatively the most power are elected, you know, in terms of concentration of it, because at least then we get a say in how they use it. And so I think there is a legitimate function to you know, having just literally like you can imagine an EKG of just the heartbeat of government just being alive <laughs> enough to where it can be an effective check on other types of concentration of power uh, that threaten basic well-being uh, in this country. And, and so, you know, again, I think antitrust law, for example, uh, is a great uh, bipartisan place to look at how do we deal with concentration of power that leads to, you know, stock buybacks by big corporations. Airlines and, and telecoms. All of the above. I mean, it, we we so, are so easily distracted as a public sometimes to use the, the airline analogy, right? When somebody in front of us uh, uh, tilts their seat back on the plane, who do we blame? We blame the person in front of us instead of the airline for squishing those seats so damn close together, right? Uh, so I think there's there's sort of big picture thinking that when people on the left, when we're trying to talk to conservatives, and I don't even mean far left, right? I just literally mean like elected Democrats. One step left of yeah, of sure, center. whatever. I'm, I have a, I've got a D by my name, right? But when I'm trying to reason with people across the aisle, this is the kind of thing I say, which is I'm not trying to do a you know government takeover on everything or you know tell people how to live. It's literally just there are some areas where the market doesn't give us perfect competition, where we don't have free entry and exit. I mean basic you know, econ 101 stuff about how is society functioning? Are there areas where government needs to just put up a guardrail? You know, antitrust is just that one example where, where we can make lives a little bit better and share the gains in a fair way. Because I think when people, uh, even conservatives, you know, uh, see wages depressed to the extent that they are, understand that they want work. Most people want to work. This gets to the conversation we were having about, you know, most people have good intentions, right? Most people want to work. Most people want uh, to, to earn an honest living. Leave it better than they found it. Leave it better than they found it. And so if we facilitate opportunity for people to do that and make sure that 
uh, corporate power is not so concentrated that uh, honest working people who are building the value that facilitates that power, that they're not you know, being rewarded. That's the kind of thing on a daily basis I try to look out for the most. When you think of the conversation that we just are exiting and you look at the industries within the state of Georgia that have concentrated power, will you just go say too big to fail? What are the ones that you deal with the most at the Gold Dome? Look, when you're in the minority party and you're in state government, you're certainly not catered to. You're not you're not the majority party in Congress. We'll put it that way. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so really, I see my role as more being about conversations we need to have. You know, you're kind of when you're in the minority, you're the conscience of the majority. The majority is one that makes the actions. They're in the driver's seat. They're pressing the buttons. But you're sort of the, you know, annoying front seat co-pilot driver that says, hey, hey, there's a stop sign here. Hey, look out for that, you know, that light. Make sure to, you know, be, be slow on the turn. Given that role, the kinds of conversations I've tried to have, you know, a little bit around consumer protection. I introduced the bill that would ban booting uh, of cars uh, last or this past year. Which is, as somebody who's done that, it is so dangerous. It is. It's a public safety thing. And this is what I try to tell people. You and I'm all, and, and, and I would be armed because I didn't want to be. That's it, that's exactly right. So people don't realize that the reason a lot of major metro areas have so dangerous, booting man. is public safety first and foremost. And and even if nobody gets hurt, we're essentially enlisting a bunch of first responders, frontline personnel to be mediators and arbitrators who show up to the to the scene and have to stand there while people yell at each other. I mean, you, you basically dispatch an officer who could be responding to, you know, violent crime. And they're in a parking lot while a booter and a driver are yelling at each other. So that is not, that's not a good use of our public safety resources. And so anyway, so that's one area, you know, uh, Georgia Power obviously is a topic that comes up a lot. Plant Vogel and the cost overruns. Um, I introduced a resolution that basically half the Senate, I think it was like 27 members signed uh, that urged the Public Safety Commission to not allow Georgia Power to, to transfer, you know, their cost overruns, rate hikes uh, to consumers in the, in the form of a rate hike, right? That's good government stuff. I mean, that's stuff where you walk around and doesn't matter if you're an R or a D, you just throw it on somebody's desk, you tell them what it is. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm signing that, right? So stuff like that. And, and you know, you hear the, the, the overture constantly from Georgia legislators in both parties that we're not like Congress to the extent that, you know, 90 plus percent of the bills that we vote on We've got what we call a green board that everyone's name lights up in green when they vote yes on something, right? So when everybody votes yes or most people vote yes, the board uh, looks green. And for the vast majority of the bills that come through, the you know just basic work of government type stuff, that's what it looks like. Uh, so you know the divisive stuff, the big social you know culture war issues, abortion and, and guns, guns and, <laughs> yeah, I mean that stuff makes the headlines, and obviously we feel it's important um, on either side of those issues. But that's, I mean, if somebody's running for office because they think that they're going to spend 12 months out of the year tweeting what they want about abortion and guns, they're, they're not thinking about the job correctly. What inspired you to run for a state house seat oh so many years ago? I really, people say this, I really did not think I was going to get into politics. I had no plans. Like, I didn't do student government. I didn't work for campaigns or try to get connected. I, literally after the 2016 election, I just, you know, I went to my primary care physician's office and they had me open my mouth, tongue depressor thing. And I was, you know, didn't know what was going on. And my physician said, I'm sorry, but you have Trump derangement syndrome. I, I can't, I can't help you. Uh, and that was a dark day. You know, I, I obviously was very upset by the, the 2016 election. And, you know, it's the whole thing of if you want the world to be a better place or you, you want to see some kind of change, you know, you should be the one who, who gets involved. And, and, you know, going back to the top of our conversation, I think that my worldview is that politics is really about trust and it's about kindness. And can you find a way to be good to people? And the people who don't have that as their top priority, those people become my political enemies, right? So it's not like I don't have political enemies. I mean, I've made one or two headlines in that regard, but it's because the people who I put myself on the opposite side of. I don't think that they're genuinely interested in helping people. I think they're out for themselves, right? And I think that, that that's my assessment of Trump. I mean, that's why from 2016 to the present day, the chorus has been, he really only cares about himself. Yes, it's true that a lot of politicians are that way, but he has a unique level of narcissism and disregard for... In an industry full of people who think a lot of themselves. Which, right, which really says something. I mean, you <laughs> even look at, you know, not to get too far in Israel-Palestine, but even his statement or statements on Israel always coming back to him, always coming back to his life and his career and what, how is it about him? It's a level of disregard for other people's suffering and, you know, concern for their well-being that is unique in, in history, I think. 
and or at least to the extent that he's been able to, to there are lots of narcissists in history, but he's been able to uh, secure a lot of political power for himself despite being that way. So yeah, I wanted to kind of devote my life and talents uh, to the extent I could. Not, sorry, I don't mean to like sound like LeBron James or something, at least I'm not referring myself in the third person, right? Um, but, I, but I wanted to devote what resources I had to standing against that type of force, uh, against the idea that politics is all me, 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 yeah, and that and that this country's fabric, the social fabric, would start to trend in that direction. I found that really scary, and so that's why I got involved. What is the biggest difference between the House and the Senate? Because you're, I think you might be the only person I've ever had on that has been in both. Really? Well, there's a, a handful of folks out there. Um, I I know, and, and and you're certainly the only. I had Mary Robichaux, who was a very dear friend yep. of mine, and she was awesome as a local control person on behalf of the city of Alpharetta. Yeah, I'm not sure who's in that seat now but i think you know it's hard to get once you get typecast and i'll speak personally because i have nine ninety five percent people in public service it's really probably 80 and then i have other people around atlanta or georgia that have done super cool things very few of them are on the left and i think that that is one of the things as i talked to joan carr who worked for johnny isaacson very smart and she was like you could totally get Democrats. And I was like, no, like I ask all the time. And I was like, I've literally only lot. Have I been fair so far? I feel like I've only lobbed <laughs> sure, softballs. Boy, no, it's fine. But what's the difference between the uh, house and the Senate house and the Senate? Here's what I like to say, because again, my perspective is a person from the minority party. So you know, I'm constrained by that in the house. The experience for a Democrat right now is like, you know, in terms of the, the day to day sparring and trying to get stuff done, there's like this tall wall. You're like on the outside of a castle wall and you can't see over the wall. And the analogy is that what the speaker says goes within that wall, right? And it's all the speaker's marching orders and the speaker's hierarchy. Every now and then you might take a grenade and lob it over the wall and like wait for the boom and hope that it made an impact of some kind. But you have no idea whether it made a difference Sometimes or not. you can't hear it. Yeah, sometimes you can't <laughs> even hear it. You're like, I don't even know if that grenade was live. And then in the Senate... Totally different metaphor. I feel like I'm one, I'm a can of pepper spray that one Republican picks up to spray another Republican with. And so I get to see that happen. And, uh, you know, out of those three people in that metaphor, two of them kind of enjoy it and the, the other person does not. Um, but no, I mean, it's, that's, that's an oversimplification. But the idea is that, again, you know, the, the, there's still the same dynamic where the majority party pushes all the buttons and is in the driver's seat. But Senate Democrats do get a little more. Not you, you got a bill through. This, I did this right. time. Yeah, there's stuff that we can do occasionally, and we're involved in negotiations sometimes where there are rifts within the Republican Party on certain policies. And we're we're not as you know in the House. I would have been much more liable to celebrate every moment where there's a rift uh, within the Republican Party and try to draw a bunch of attention to it. But in the Senate, that's such a reality of everyday life, and it's so out in the open because there's not that hierarchy enforced by a person like the speaker in the same way, right, that it's just not useful to try and, and highlight those differences so much. I mean, the House is really about— There's a lot fewer people in there, so you got to be kind. That's real—well, and it's it's not that you're not kind in the House because the, the House—I have tons of lovely relationships on both sides of the aisle in the House— it's more in terms of the group dynamic. The group dynamic in the House is you've got kind of these, you know, two armies that are playing this tactical game. And then in the Senate, people say it's a lot more like having 56 independent contractors who just sort of bounce around. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, that's definitely true. I, I can't deny I really do enjoy uh, the dynamic in the Senate just because it does reward creative thinking, the ability to, to be agile and make alliances with people based on their disposition and what kind of policies they like. It just creates a much more interesting and, and fruitful working environment than sort of, you know, marching along with, with the beat of the team drum uh, in the house. Talk about a handful of the people that you really think a lot of that you serve with. This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation. Like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. 
Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. Today. Sure. Did you think, you're like, man, it's, even even once you disagree with, it's better because you're here. Oh, those, yeah. Those folks. I'll start with a Republican. Senator Russ Goodman uh, represents South Georgia, I think the Valdosta area. He's a farmer. He's got a cobbler company. He was just in Israel, actually, during— I saw, I saw on, yeah. on the news yeah. he, he, he was stuck over there. <laughs> I'm very happy he made out safely, and he's fine. Um, Russ is a fighter for the little guy. Obviously, there's some top-level partisan issues that he and I disagree about. And, you know, he'll vote this way, I'll vote that way. But, you know, his heart on the vast majority of these issues, I mean, it's obvious that he cares about the little guy. He cares about patriotism, civility, unity— and he's outspoken about it. He's not just somebody who's kind when you press him on it and you ask him his views on things. He'll go to the well uh, in the Senate and stand up for things like, let's lead with an open heart. I mean, that that's, again, exactly the type of lens that I use to evaluate politics myself at the very basic point. Now, he and I diverge from that point later on, but our, our fundamental prior is, what can we do to be the best versions of ourselves, be good to people? And, uh, and look out for the little guy. So, you know, he's a great example of somebody who, when it comes to character, you want them there. You recognize, look, his district's going to be a Republican district. And it ain't changing. And it ain't changing. If they're going to send anybody up here, it better be Russ. Anybody on the other side? You know, <laughs> Leader Butler, uh, I can give her a shout out. She has, you know, one of my favorite personal dispositions in the Senate because, you know, she's been there a while. She was there in the majority very briefly, but then she spent the rest of her time in the minority. And she leads with sort of what I would call a quiet confidence. I mean, she's obviously very vocal and she'll make the statement she needs to make, but she's not belligerent. She's not in your face. I mean, I think some people think minority party, Democrats, whatever, you know, a lot of like images of protest show up in their heads, like people. In oh, the it's easy. Or something, right? You're painted a certain way right. by everybody who doesn't agree with you. Exactly. And that happens both ways. But. but but Leader Butler, as leader of our caucus, um, is very much about no nonsense. We'll say what we need to say, fight when we need to fight, but we're not going to be hysterical. We are going to be principled, and we're going we're gonna to work as a unit. And that sort of leadership style, and also, I mean, she doesn't take herself too seriously in the sense of, look, this is just a job, right? I mean, we all have views on exactly how a caucus should be run, and, you know, she's got hers and other members have theirs. But on a personal level, she is one of the kindest, most delightful people in the Senate, and, uh, and I've really enjoyed working with her. As you look down the road, it is if, – if for those of you who are sitting in your car and at home and you think Georgia is not competitive, it is very holistically competitive on a state-by-state -state basis with, with the right candidate – Either party has the ability to win a statewide race. There's a lot of dynamics that come into play from a national or international standpoint that affect things. What do you think is next for you? Like, you you, you're, you can give me the token I'm happy in the Senate. <laughs> I'll be here until I'm term, I'm a term limits guy. Or what, what do you ultimately, do you, do you see yourself as somebody who'd run for statewide office? Do you, does Washington, D.C. pull on you in any way? You know, here's what I'll say. I'm 35 years old. I've now been in the General Assembly five years going on six. Not something I really ever planned to do in my mid-20s. And so, you know, it's the kind of thing where you start down a path, you wake up, it's 10 years later, right? I'm not married. I don't have kids. Those are things I would like to do. I think I have reached, and I, you know, you can, you can accuse me of lying later if I end up, you know, running for governor of the moon or something. Uh, but I feel like there are things in life that are more important than this. I, I can tell you there are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, there's a, a lot of buzz within political circles that all, you know, oh, this is the stuff that matters. And it's like we, we really do need to touch grass because, um, you know, you can get way too far into this bubble. I would love to have an opportunity to live what feels like a normal life. But I also have to balance that with a feeling like, hey, if I'm having fun doing this, if I feel like there's something I have to contribute uh, and nobody has, you know, gotten in my way yet, no, no sort of universal sign like, hey, stop it, cut it out, then I'll, I'll keep going as long as it's clever to do it. I think that, you know, I, I, there's been coverage that if a 
new congressional district opens up right on top of North Fulton, I would look at that. Yeah, of course, I'd, I would definitely look at that. Uh, because again, if you're really committed to the idea that there's certain values that we need to return to uh, in terms of kindness, uh, the way that we care about our neighbor that you know you think are underrepresented at the national level, somebody has to have the ball. Somebody has to go you know, be that voice or, or contribute to that set of voices. Uh, and that would be my motivation for doing it. I think, you know, being in Congress sounds like it sucks. There are plenty of people who have passed on it. You know, the the you see people who that get, that, that America would be better to have. There you go. I mean, you, <laughs> you, you see the people who get elected to Congress. I know the state legislators personally who could have been Congress people but decided not to be because they preferred their state role and they weren't, you know, super loud about that, right? And so, you know, in Congress, you're especially if you're one of these frontline members uh, in a close swing district, you know, obviously these numbers, it very, it very much matters how tight the, the numbers are in the House right now. Those members have to sit in a box, right, a cubicle offsite from Capitol grounds and make phone calls for four or five hours a day uh, begging for money. Yeah, how, it doesn't sound fun. How miserable does that sound, right? Well, so it's not it, that I wouldn't do that. It's, it would have to be worth it. It would have to be worth it. What do you see? What do you want to really accomplish in your role right now with the state? If you had one thing that you knew you could, you had the ability to impact and drag the right number of people along from the other side that that would see the governor's desk and potentially get signed into law, what are the things you want to concentrate on the next legislative session? Medicaid expansion is an easy one. I mean, I think the reason why that talking point either always gets made or never gets made is because... It's so crystallized, the debate on it at this point. It's been over a decade, and Georgia hasn't moved on it and is now in a minority of states. When you've seen Arkansas, yeah, get you, and that's a state that is significantly to the right exactly. of, of Georgia. Talk about what that means. Talk about Medicaid expansion. Yeah. The problem is when the Affordable Care Act uh, passed early, you know, it was like 2009, right, uh, Obama's first big legislative achievement, there was an assumption that states would – expand. Well, actually, the first iteration of it, the states were basically forced to expand Medicaid. And I, I believe the Supreme Court struck that down and said, they did. you can't right, commandeer the states to force them to do it. So unfortunately, because of the structure of the act and Obama, you know, whatever reasons he was polarizing or, or, or was polarized, Medicaid expansion became this sort of, you know, proxy for Obama. It became this, well, we'll do what we want to do. It was right? his. It was definitely a bold legislative achievement. I would tell you as the guy who sits here now and pays $2,200 a month for family medical insurance, I'm like, man, I am not sure that this is right. Well, but, but right. Yeah. And so the, you know, the, the thing about healthcare, I mean, I don't, we could do a whole hour just on this, but the design of the Affordable Care Act assumed that if you were between a hundred percent, I guess it's like 138% of the poverty line, I think that's the number, that you would be subject to coverage by this Medicaid expansion that every state would obviously do, right? And above 138, you you know would be in the marketplace, and then uh, below 100, obviously, uh, Medicaid would cover. Uh, but the expansion was this idea that we should include single payer, you know, include a larger number of people in single payer because realistically, the options that those people in that 100 to 138 percent of the poverty line uh, bracket have uh, are, are very few. Now that states have not expanded Medicaid, there exists a hole there. And, you know, Kemp has tried to come up with waivers to do innovation, re, you know, sort of reframe a, another version of the healthcare marketplace or, or do a limited waiver of, of people, you know, up to a certain uh, level of income. But, you know, the, the numbers, just the objective facts are, I mean, it was maybe a few hundred people signed up when that waiver first started going into effect. And it's nowhere near at this point the several hundred thousand people that are projected to have coverage if we were to actually fully expand Medicaid. And by the way, what that means, quote, expand Medicaid, is that we would get, I think, a 90 percent match from the federal government. From the federal government on taxes we've already paid. And that's that's the key part. I, there's, they're not exactly fungible. It's not exactly like other states are using our money. But it is true that we have paid federal tax money that we would be able to draw back uh, in order to, uh, to fund that expansion. The reason the state has argued we shouldn't do it is, well, we are responsible for like 10% of the cost. And, well, we don't know if the federal government will pull the rug out from us someday. We've been cooking now for over a decade with this, this legislative framework, and nobody's had the rug pulled out from under them, right? I'll, I'll, I'll talk politically and I'll talk sure. pra practically as to how I feel. I, I'm not necessarily 
the math conversation to me, I, I think you win a hundred percent of the time yeah. on it. The problem that I have with it was the same problem when when they forced COVID dollars to municipalities and hospitals and airlines and everybody and their brother. And you didn't want if, if somebody didn't want to take the COVID money because they knew you would sit in this place today, you're holistically because you take the money, you are making you are a part of the inflationary problem that this country is in. And like that's not really partisan. I think Kemp's idealism around it, and I have not spoken to him, I'll ask, is because he doesn't want to make America worse than it already is from a balance sheet perspective would be one of the things that I would say. And I think he's candidly right there. You're still already paid the money. You're getting a 90-10 deal for free. You have a $6 billion surplus. And on some level, when you run government surpluses, it is a function of overtaxation. You don't run a surplus for any other reason than you have efficiencies and you're giving it back to people disproportionately as to what they would pay in. I do think that it is something that ultimately gets done as Georgia becomes, I think it becomes more competitive. I think that if Donald Trump reemerges into the White House, you will see the suburbs drastically send a message to the state legislator, especially among the 10% of persuadable people on either side that hate the man. I'm one of them. And I, but I do think that it's a, it's a function. You, the state of Georgia is very well run. It is not perfect. You, most of the municipalities that you represent are very well-run places. I, you're a legislator. I'm going to jump in and disagree uh, pretty strongly on a couple of these points. Yes. Yeah. Finally. Yeah, here we go. Uh, if you have a surplus, it doesn't mean that you're successfully paying for the government that you need. It means I think we agree. It means that you are paying for a government that the public is willing to accept, and all willing to accept means is that they're not punishing the people in charge for spending at those levels. So if you have a disconnect between a real need in state government, behavioral health, incarceration, both adults and kids, the correctional officers are getting paid 30, 40 grand a year to do jobs that are in some, many cases objectively more dangerous than being a police officer, right? Because they could get killed at any moment inside these facilities. Chronic understaffing, right? Uh, basic functions of government that are going unfunded. The reason why they continue to be unfunded is that voters are not punishing the people in charge for funding at those levels because a lot of voters don't realize the problem or some don't care. So the idea is this. If you are funding government at levels that it needs to be funded at for lives to be better, for suffering to be at the lowest possible point that we can manage, that doesn't necessarily mean that voters either approve or disapprove of that, right? The, the government we get is the one that voters approve. And so if you're running a surplus, it doesn't mean you're necessarily overtaxing. It could be that some of that money you're sending back in $250, $500 checks would have been critical to keep people from dying at levels in our prisons and jails that are unconstitutional that the DOJ has to step in and stop us, right? So let's be clear that the budgeting process is a political process. And if we are underfunding the government, the only question is whether voters are allowing that to happen. So I think, you know, when it comes to is the state of Georgia really well run, I mean, let's talk about that we're, there's new rankings, we're 50th in healthcare. Let's talk about the fact that turnover in so many agencies is at critical, unbelievable levels, that salaries are struggling to keep up with the private sector in almost every agency, and that it's a massive problem. Because, you know, again, if voters say, yeah, that's fine, cool, then we'll keep doing it. But if voters are connected to the idea that, hey, you know, you get what you pay for, and by the way... We've made a policy decision, at least on healthcare, to go back to that, that if somebody shows up in an emergency room, they get treatment. We have not made the decision in this country that people just die in the street if they have a life-threatening problem. They get care, and that's indigent care. It's not funded, or it's not compensated for these hospitals directly. Correct. And so what do they do? If you go in the emergency room as anybody in the United States of America, they have to take you. Correct. And so here's my thing. I, you know, it's at some level, part of this job is just explaining or trying to make clear the logic of our policy choices. I'm not even like trying to push you to go one way or the other. I'm just saying, hey, look, if we have federal law that says you have to treat people when they go in an ER, we have made the decision that those people get care. So instead of saying, big government, let's not fund. Let's think about the fact that we're going to give those people care. What's the cheapest way to do it? Is the cheapest way to do it to let them run into an ER, you no. know, use the most expensive after-the-fact possible treatment or care on a, on a returning, you know, sort of recidivist basis? Or is it to do the much cheaper preventative option of giving that person some sort of single-payer uh, coverage, right, 
where they can get basic preventative care and prevent themselves from being in that situation. Because I think what people, the, the fallacy here is, well, why do I have to pay for somebody else's health care? You already are. Oh, or, totally. or, or if we're not, those hospitals close. Wellstar, level one uh, trauma center closes. Rural hospitals, tens of them throughout the state, closing. And so we're just making the policy choice right now. Yeah, we like our tax, you know, and policy mix. Uh, let's just let a bunch of rural hospitals close. That's the current policy of the state of Georgia. And there's a lot of posturing, right, by the administration, by, you know, people who don't want to admit that this is happening. Well, we're doing what we need to on healthcare. Well, we got to let the market solve the problem. Market ain't solving the problem. I don't ever pretend like anybody listens to the show. One of the shows that I got the absolute most hate over, and I put it on the radio, and I did it on my podcast, was when Wellstar closed Atlanta Medical Center. They bought that hospital as a part of an acquisition, and that hospital wasn't solvent. They knew what they were buying, and they knew that they had the leeway, ultimately, at some point to close it and get out of that business. And I sat here with Tom Price, by all accounts, is a guy that loves this state and loves this country. You can disagree with his politics to, to the moon and back. But he looked at me and he said, good for you, man. They totally knew what they were buying, and they closed that hospital, and it disproportionately affected people of color, and there's no getting around it. And when a guy like him is willing to look at you and say that, like, I knew I was right. And you probably agree with him even less than I did. It was one of those things where you just stood up and clapped because it's it's a do the right thing. To your point that you, I don't know that we you said anything that I patently disagreed with. My biggest problem with Governor Kemp is that he runs the state of Georgia like Walmart. I don't like Walmart. I don't want to be Walmart. I want to drive roads that have good infrastructure. You drive down around two eighty five. And the interstate system, it is in as bad a shape today as it has been in the last 20 years. And while we can disagree on where to spend the money, you know what I would rather have than another $250? Not to go get another set of tires because you didn't do your job. I'm not the prison reform guy. That's not that I don't think that it's smart. I think that, you know, the First Step Act and there are plenty of really good bipartisan things. I don't believe in locking up nonviolent criminals forever because that's stupid because it costs so much money to, to incarcerate them. But what I do think is that when you pay off people during election season to go vote for you because they got 250 or $500 or a property tax credit, it's great once you've funded all of your obligations. I would be more than content with you. And I've told Ryan Germany, who, you know, worked in Raffensperger's office, who really wrote a lot of Senate Bill 202 that got force-fed. force, force fed. And I said, look, man, he said, well, all of these counties can't sit there and afford three weeks of early voting and to properly staff it. I said, well, you guys wrote the bill, and he signed it. If you run a $6 billion surplus, that's the first thing in this state that we should do right. You not being able to answer all the questions is problematic. You and I, may we would, I mean, I'm not even going to pretend, we would disagree on how we spent the $6 billion or what we spent it on. I'm also a reasonable person, so that it's like if you felt strongly about something that made coherent sense, and you look at, I know you've got a good relationship with Kevin Tanner, who is a gentleman. It, Governor Kemp couldn't put a better person over that. And, like, he eats, sleeps, and breathes it every single day. And he would, whether or not he set an elected or appointed office, period, because that's genuinely like, absolutely. He's, he's a bright guy. spot. Tanner's a great guy. While I don't necessarily, I don't have to have the empathy for every single thing to know that everybody down there cares about something and not, and, and they're not always right. And they're not always wrong. And this is kind of a big picture thing. That's really a decades long conversation for everybody in the country. We are going through one of the biggest crises of trust that this country's seen for a long time. Really like a, do we want to live with our neighbors type thing? You, know, you, you hear people talk about national divorce. Uh, everybody has a Thanksgiving-style story about, well, I can't go to this house anymore, and I can't talk to this relative for whatever political reason. Voters are tired of this. Every, I'm, everyone's tired of this. I'm the flag bearer. And <laughs> what I would, you know, if we want to have the wonky conversation on this, because it's really important to have just the basic conversation about culture and people and the social dynamic, because that's tragic enough. But if we want to have the policy conversation about it, one thing I would ask people to think about is that that trust conversation bears on these practical questions about does a correctional officer 
who's risking their life every day to secure, you know, jails and prisons that are under federal investigation. Part of the reason that person's only making 30, 40 a year is because of this domino chain of choices we're all making as a result of our lapse of public trust. Because we have trust issues, when one party wants to raise a budget for this item or one party wants to you know, raise taxes for this, there's a trust issue about, well, you're going to spend it badly because you're one of those people from that other tribe. And so I don't trust you to have my tax money. It, it, government is nothing more than collective action. The whole, you know, you, you go to Econ 101, PolySci 101, the whole reason for having a government is, you know, what is it? Life is nasty, brutish, short, human nature type stuff. But if we want to make decisions as a group, we have to have some mechanism for doing that, for, for public choice, public decision making. You know, it's really easy to be in a position of power and say, oh, I don't need all this money. Let me send it back. Oh, but by the way, at the same time, I'll take all this federal money and take credit for it, right? But yes, yeah, yeah. it's really easy to do that. What's much harder and much more noble, in my opinion, is to have a real vision for what we are trying to do as a community together. What are we trying to accomplish that we do need resources to accomplish as a community that we can't do by ourselves? That, you know, all of the Chick-fil-A, you know, charity benefits in the world put together are not going to solve. Healthcare is one example. But, you know, any of these conversations, this idea that, yes, yeah, some people have to be in prisons and jails what are we going to do to make sure that we're not killing people in these facilities or worse? And this is, this affects everybody manufacturing gangs, you know, Republicans, when they do gang legislation are the first to testify that if you are admitted to one of these facilities within hours, you're recruited into a gang. My question is why are we manufacturing gangs in state facilities? Are they, are we going to have fewer gangs if you know, or gang activity, if people are not entering these facilities, something to really think about. Uh, so anyway, all that just to say, you know, our budgeting decisions are a reflection of our priorities and our priorities are a reflection of how much we trust each other. So it really, there are some very serious downstream effects to all the Facebook posting is that we end up not being able to, I mean, look at the, the Speaker of the House issues right now. We end up not being able to rally the, the resources and the group motivation we need to do the most basic things. When you look, I want to ask you about the Fulton County Jail. They're arguing... And at the Fulton County Commission about the property tax increase that will it will ultimately take to, I don't know how else to say this, but to make it right. And I don't even know that that's the right way to phrase it. I'm seeking permission to have phrased that poorly. And it's going, it's one of those things that affects literally every resident here, but it's beyond that. Do you think that that's something where the state of Georgia is willing to take it or are they just going to leave it all at Fulton County and be like, you guys solve your own problem? Well, let's start with the biggest policy problem with any jail or prison, and that is for the vast majority of voters, it's out of sight, out of mind. So I'm, and I'm one of them. Nobody's thinking about it until the worst stuff starts happening, right? But I, I want to key into something you said a minute ago. You said, you know, nonviolent criminals. Have you ever uh, committed the misdemeanor offense of speeding? You are a nonviolent criminal, right? Uh, and I think it's, you know, we have these labels for things. But the reality is that our, we are in a state where traffic violations are criminal offenses. They're punishable up to 12 months incarceration, every traffic offense, which, by the way, if you're good libertarian, right, uh, means that police power, the scope of police power is involved, too, because these are all criminal offenses. They authorize a whole range of investigatory tools and turn traffic stops into, you know, police case studies every single time. Right. So given the scope of liability that's out there, potentially. And the fact that, you know, you had Paul Howard in the DA's office uh, before Fani and or DA Willis and uh, and he let that backlog grow to thousands and thousands of cases. And then you stack in, you know, aging facilities and uh, uh, sheriffs who haven't always been on the ball. Right. Everybody's got a piece of this at the Fulton Jail. And what you end up with is massive overcrowding, underfunding, less accountability for vendors than the commission would like to have. Right. It just all pops and it starts to the, the worst things start to happen. You know, the, the horrible stories. I mean, death by bed bugs or, or you know, bed oh, bug yeah, bug yeah. everybody like can it, read it's them. just it's the it's the and that's only what you know. about. That's only what you know about. And I think, you know, again, there's the humanitarian aspect, which is, look, we should all care that this is happening because, you know, at some level we are morally judged by what we allow to happen to the most vulnerable people in society. When I say most vulnerable, you know, it's not like everybody in the Fulton jail is accused of a violent crime. To the point of this backlog, to the idea that so much is criminalized. You couldn't pay a $500 traffic ticket. You couldn't pay a ticket or you, you know, you couldn't afford bail on something small. And, you know, the majority of the state legislature has done everything it can 
I really mean this, to tighten the screws, to force judges uh, to let as few people out as possible. And so they're creating this pressure for overcrowding. And it, what it means is that if these facilities are run down, if uh, we don't have the staff that we need to make sure they're safe, yes, terrible things will happen. And this is, if you put anybody in the circumstances, I mean, this is like the Stanford prison experiment. If you put students in a situation where there's hierarchy, they start beating each other up, right? It's a similar dynamic. It's not that, you know, the people we're putting in here are inherently this way. I, I want people to sort of realize that, you know, by, by putting people in these really awful places, you subject them to pressures that, I mean, there's a reason why there has been, uh, you know, s- scandals of correctional officers in our state facilities uh, accepting bribes or, or, you know, trafficking things inside the prisons because they're paid so little. They're not getting by. That, that it literally makes sense for them to cooperate with some sort of gang member on the inside. I think if we really don't turn our heads away, if we it can actually stand to look at the problem head on and see it for what it is, you realize this isn't just a thing that is out of sight, out of mind. It affects me. It you know, if gangs are able to grow their membership, subject people to horrible conditions, coerce people from inside these facilities, they can direct traffic outside. You know, you can do all the press conferences in the world about controlling gang violence, but if you don't go to the point source where they're manufactured. You're, you're going to be playing whack-a-mole uh, for as long as these, um, you know, conditions exist. So I just, um, you know, I think, I think that, look, we go through enough trauma every day just trying to make it to work on time, get the kids to school, you know, pay the bills that I, I get, you know, asking people to take on more of a psychic load here to care about these issues is, is asking a lot. But I think the, 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 the question is just, how, how can we look away from some of this stuff as a state? We just can't do it. We have to do something. Any final thoughts from you, Senator McLaurin? Well, Josh is fine. You know, Ben, um, I always welcome the opportunity to uh, nominally play a little conversational badminton over the technical net that exists uh, between us. But uh, no, I mean, I think this type of conversation where, look, you acknowledge differences from the outset, you try to find areas of common ground, you approach it from a a basic standpoint of openness and kindness. If all of us did that on a daily basis, we practiced that and we didn't save all of our, you'd forget who you were fighting with. Well, if we didn't, you know, use all our powder on social media, being keyboard warriors against each other. Cowboys. Yeah, there you go. Society would look a lot different. And, And I think our public choices, our actual operation of government would be a lot different too, because we wouldn't as legislators feel the need to go cater to the the most extreme voices out there. It's been another episode of the Ben Burnett Show. We'll see you guys next week. Spring is here and baseball is back. You can't forget the Derby. I love the hats. Do you have yours yet? My hat? I treated myself to a whole outfit. If you want to be able to treat yourself, then you should check out the Nest Savings Account at LGE Community Credit Union, where they want you to reach your savings goals faster. Take it from a pair of 680 The Fan Wives. Head to lgeccu.org to find out what makes their team number one in Georgia. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. Hi, I'm Mark Beckham with Atlanta Ramjack. We specialize in only foundation repair. What is foundation repair? Foundations sink or settle. These issues need to be addressed. It only becomes more costly the longer you put it off. What is the biggest cause of foundation problem? Either poor construction, inferior site preparation, or weather. Drought causes cracks in your foundations. If you see any signs of foundation issues, please contact us at atlantaramjack.com.